hello friends, Dave York here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm a research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. You know, the Greek meaning of the evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think I'm bringing the good news in cancer research by interviewing people in life sciences who are doing great work. And I call them brilliant, but not famous. And I always laugh because uh, they, they are famous in the sense that they're well-known and respected in their field uh, and by their peers and, and, and the communities that they serve. But, but my next door neighbor might not recognize their name if I, if I bring it up. So today I am super excited to introduce you to Dr. Charu Agarwal. And Dr. Agarwal is uh, the Leslie M. Heisler Associate Professor for Lung Cancer Excellence at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Of course, that's my alma mater, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, she's a medical oncologist at the Abramson uh, Cancer Center who specializes in the management of patients with lung and head and neck cancer. Her clinical research focuses on the development of novel immunotherapeutic approaches and the discovery and application of biomarkers to guide therapy and monitor treatment. Of course, you know I love precision medicine. Uh, she serves as a local and national principal investigator for multiple clinical trials, focusing on the development of targeted immunotherapy approaches, including cellular therapy and CAR-T for solid tumors. So Charu, thank you for coming and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dave. What an honor. <laughs> well, it, as I told you, you know I'm from Penn, or I went to Penn, so uh, you're my first Penn guests. So that is really exciting for me. So yay, I get to be first for something. <laughs> go Quakers. Let's go. <laughs> so, uh, you know, since, since I'm bringing the good news, you know, I've heard you say that lung cancer has become the poster child for targeted therapy options and solid tumors. Is there more good news on the horizon? So Dave, I'm just so thrilled to be a medical oncologist that specializes in lung cancer. Um, today, it's become um, such an amazing um, field because literally every few weeks, uh, you know, we come across a new therapy that is showing promise or is being FDA approved. When I was in um, training, you know, we were still debating whether or not patients should receive maintenance therapy. Uh, you know, we knew about a few subtypes um, that were oncogene addicted tumors and, you know, new therapies were coming on the horizon. But I, I did not imagine that we would be in a situation where we would really talk to patients about gene sequencing and really offering precision medicine and personalized therapies. I definitely think there are many new um, options emerging. You know, we are in the midst of a world conference on lung cancer. And just last night, we heard exciting data on therapies for EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations. Now, we all know that EGFR is a very actionable target, but we also know that within the EGFR mutation subset, there are mutations that are sensitive, and then there are mutations that aren't. And EGFR exon 20 has insertion mutations have characteristically or inherently been resistant to our current TKI approaches. I was really thrilled to see that now not just one, but two drugs are showing you know, benefit responses. I mean, I think we have a long way to go in terms of making these drugs tolerable for our patients because it does come with baggage of toxicity. So we heard data on mobocertinib and we heard data on amivantamab. And we, we find that both drugs are quite active. And I think it's very exciting to see that we are 
while we are beginning to carve pieces of the pie, we are also being able to act upon those pieces. And then of course, everyone is really excited about the Keras G12C inhibitors and you know, the activity that we are seeing. Again, you know, the activity is not as robust as we would have expected with an EGFR or an ALK-TKI, but remember this is a KRS G12C drug. You know, if I'm seeing a response rate in the 30s, I'm actually pretty thrilled about it because I, that means that I'm able to still offer personalized therapy and avoid toxicities that otherwise would come with chemotherapy. Yeah, there's a lot of exciting things happening. It's it, this this conference, the World Long, is like so it's so massive. It's kind of intimidating for for us patients to try to figure it out. But there there's some advocates out there that like Janet Freeman Daly and who who are just science you know gurus for us you know to help kind of help guide us you know with the latest information. So uh, so I'd like to to really kind of get to know you a little bit about you know your journey. Um, um, as, as you're now at Penn, of course, but you went to medical school in India and you did your master's in public health at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. I'd love to hear, uh, you know, kind of how you found your way, you know, to Penn uh, and what obstacles, you know, did you encounter as a woman and as someone who was new to the United States? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in New Delhi, India, um, which is the capital and very metropolitan and multicultural. And I went to medical school there and I really had this inclination to uh, do something beyond I could achieve uh, in India. And my parents encouraged me to consider, um, you know, possibly doing a postgraduate degree or doing masters and consider doing residency in the United States. And I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to leap into that right away. And I, I definitely wanted to get a better understanding of what life would be like in the United States if I would, were to come here. And I pursued a master's of public health um, with a major in epidemiology and statistics at the University of Alabama in, in Birmingham. And it was kind of a reverse culture shock. I won't be um, dishonest about it, Dave, because I came from New Delhi to Birmingham. While I love Birmingham as a town, I think you know it was completely reverse of what I had imagined as you know a, a young adult coming to the United States. Uh, however, I have to say that that opportunity of pursuing a master's program uh, gave me so much in return. You know, I was able to then really understand the American health system because it's so different. Um, than any other country outside of the US, you know, this whole managed care, Medicare, Medicaid. I really got an in-depth understanding. I took courses in public health law. And I think that was just really eye-opening. And then having epidemiology and statistics really formed the foundation for a career in research. I would also say that you know, while I was doing my master's program, I had the opportunity to um, be a research assistant and I sought um, to do research in oncology. At that time, I worked um, in outcomes research at the bone marrow transplant unit at the University of Al Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. And I really got drawn into, you know, how much you can do in terms of outcomes research, as well as how novel therapies were shaping outcomes for these patients that had received allogeneic and autologous bone marrow transplants back in the, in the day. So my first uh, research presentation 
was actually an oral presentation at the ASBMT meeting uh, back in 2005. And I was really drawn to the idea of, you know, presenting your research, having peers review it. And it was really exciting for me as a research assistant. Mind you, I had not even uh, done residency at that time. Um, and that really laid the groundwork for an, a career in oncology because I thought I could, you know, really make a difference. And it wasn't until fellowship that I realized that I wanted to do lung cancer. Um, and that's mainly because, you know, I think you're not really exposed to solid tumor uh, oncology as much when you're a resident. Um, you know, all we see or, or a lot of our perceptions are colored by what we see on the inpatient side. Um, but in fellowship, I got to see the outpatient world of, you know, a lung cancer clinic where I was able to see how, you know, we can really make a difference in making people have good quality of life, right? So I think I was really drawn by that. I was, I was drawn by the fact that we can keep folks doing what they want to do, what they love to do, keep them out of the hospital and offer meaningful therapies. At the same time, you know, as a first year fellow, I was also um, uh, taking care of breast cancer patients and GI patients. And I felt like lung cancer research, at least at the time, lagged behind significantly what other disease types were doing. There were strong advocacy organizations as well as funding organizations that were behind other disease sites. And I felt like lung cancer really lagged behind and I thought I could make a difference. And that's how uh, it really came about. I should also say that my path to Penn has been driven not just by my own passion, but has been guided by a lot of mentorship and sponsorship. Um, and I try to inculcate that in my daily life because I wouldn't have been here if I didn't have people looking out for me. Uh, I wouldn't have been here if people hadn't said, oh, she's talented and she wants to do things and she has a drive. So let's give her opportunities. And I, I've had uh, many opportunities handed to me and I'm ever so grateful for that. But what I do is I hand them back and I uh, really make an effort to mentor and sponsor people, especially women, um, and make sure that I'm spreading the wealth and I'm giving back. I love that. I love that. In fact, there's a there's a metaphor that I'd, I've I've re I've heard that, you know, when when women are rising and they 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 say to keep the ladder down, right? So you know the, the next one can can rise up, you know. But I, and I love the words the term sponsorship, right? And it was someone pointed out to me that that's different than mentorship. You know, mentors, you look up to someone, but a sponsor really is someone who says, hey, this, you're talented and we wanna make you rise. So, and I, I love the fact that you're thinking of doing that to the, you know, to the next generation, you know, of scientists. I think that's, that's you know, that's super cool. And by the way, another thing that is a common thread through the people I've talked to um, is this, this idea of the impact of, of seeing a patient, seeing a lung cancer patient that may have influenced your, determination to go into that field. So it's really cool to hear that. So as a, as a, as a lung cancer patient, I can tell you that that means a lot. That means a lot to us. And, and I'm just going to throw some sunshine your way because, you know, a lot of us in this community just love people like you who are, who are advocates and, and, and involved, you know, with our community. So, so thank you, so, you know, so much for that. Um, so I, I, let's talk about your, um, you know, work in clinical trials. You know, I, I know that you're excited about that. You're very active in that. We talked earlier about, 
you know, sort of this this whole idea of precision medicine. So so let's just talk about that. Like, tell us some things that you're super excited about, um, you know, in lung cancer in, in your in your work um, at Penn. Absolutely. So, you know, I think we discussed this a little bit briefly that lung cancer is really becoming the poster child for precision medicine. And I think what I'm most passionate about is um, molecular testing for all newly diagnosed patients with lung cancer. And I think we have uh, data now to guide us that irrespective of stage, we should really be testing these folks because now we have, you know, adjuvant osimertinib, but, you know, we do have trials that have either completed accrual or are close to completing accrual for other TKIs that may be very relevant in the adjuvant space. So I do, firstly, I think for stage four patients, everyone should get molecularly tested if they, you know, have a non-squamous histology. Uh, but also I think it should be extended to earlier stage disease. And, you know, historically, uh, molecular testing has been very difficult to do, you know, because of both barriers that are intrinsic to the tumor itself or the infrastructure barriers. Um, you know, we are blessed at Penn to have an in-house mechanism to do gene sequencing, uh, but we find that, you know, even that simple step of acquiring that tissue and sending it out at other places for molecular testing, sometimes that system is just broken and, you know, it's just a cause for frustration. Um, a few years ago, as you know, you know, liquid biopsy came came on the horizon and it really became a very attractive option. It's minimally invasive, you know, but little was known if you can really use it to direct care. Uh, and that's where we came in to evaluate whether or not we could use plasma either alone or in combination with tissue testing to really determine what treatments we can offer to our patients. And I think that story has been replicated and you know, repeated again to the point where plasma testing has now become routine and standard of care in initial diagnosis and testing. And, you know, I, I'm thrilled to have been part of that story where we can now confidently say that if you find a mutation on plasma, you should act upon it. What I also am very passionate about is educating my colleagues and community on the fact that plasma testing or plasma NGS may be negative sometimes. So if it's negative, that doesn't mean that you should stop uh, or a physician should stop or a patient should stop. You know, we should always ask about tissue testing because it still remains the gold standard. What I envision with, uh, you know, plasma testing in the future is, um, and some of the work we are doing is really using it as, an in, as a non-invasive biomarker um, for therapeutic response, not just in patients who are on targeted therapies, but can I get a plasma biopsy, let's say at three weeks in for somebody who's receiving immunotherapy or six weeks in or nine weeks in and really predict whether or not they're going to continue to respond or should I add in chemotherapy or if they started chemoimmunotherapy, can I take away chemotherapy and just put them on immunotherapy? So we actually just, um, our paper literally just got accepted uh, where we are describing our results of how we can use plasma testing at different time points in patients who are receiving immunotherapy. You know, another um, 
another approach that we are taking is to really implement plasma-based testing in a system-wide approach. So, you know, academic institutions can do this probably better than smaller community sites where I can say, I'm going to order plasma testing on everyone, but it's not that easy to actually implement. So we're coming up with algorithmic approaches where we can actually implement some electronic ways to remind physicians about, um, you know, this is a patient who's a candidate for plasma testing, please consider that. And really become making it like a pipeline that people can implement in the community. Because it's one thing for us to do it at Penn, but what we really need is to implement it everywhere. And then the last thing I would say with liquid biopsies, I think the real um, value of precision medicine be it plasma testing or be it some other kind of testing would be really to identify the highest of the high-risk patients in the adjuvant setting. Is three years of osimertinib for everyone? Probably not. There are patients who may be cured without it, but what if we can select those patients who uh, are going to have some sort of morbidity by development of this brain met or some other metastases and can we find a way to really identify them. So we're working on certain approaches in these uh, adjuvant patients, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, that the whole this whole idea of of uh, liquid biopsy, you know, I, I remember I think I first read about it probably five years ago when I was reading about, you know, Bert Vogelstein and and Dan Haber at MGH. And and I was I was like, that would be so amazing. You imagine like you can actually just just get a blood draw and you can, you know, and and I didn't realize how fast in the in the past five years how far that's come, you know. So, one of the things that I you you touched on that I um, you know, first of all you said that the system was kind of broken with with these molecular tests, you know, getting the results. But and I like to follow up on that. But also you mentioned about people in the community settings, you know, getting the same, you know, access. I, I talk about that a lot because I, I I wonder or I worry that people in a, maybe in a community setting are not getting access to the same level um, of testing that you might get at a place like Penn. So what do you think the, the roadblocks are? Is it just as education? Is it just, is it, is it, is it cost or what is the, you know, what do you think is the, the reason for that? I think there are multiple um, reasons. I, I honestly think that oncologists make a really uh, earnest 100% uh, effort in making sure that they are doing the right thing. And I think that's true across the board, um, be it community or academics, but I think there are systems in place that are inherently making it tough. For example, if there's a small biopsy sample and your the local pathology lab has um, done you know 15 IHC stains on it already to figure out if it's a squamous or a non-squamous, the the high likelihood is that that residual tumor sample is just not enough to do any kind of meaningful molecular testing. So then, you know, the oncologist receives the report and then says, okay, fine, I want to go ahead and order NGS or gene sequencing. There's a delay in the time that the, that the oncologist sees the patient, orders the testing, and then the sample goes out to an outside test. What would be really nice is to have reflex testing. 
So if a pathologist calls out a report as a non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, there should be mechanisms within each system to reflexively say this patient needs or this sample needs to be tested for gene sequencing. And this is our pathway to do it without wasting time. I mean, let's be honest. We've done this for breast cancer forever. You never hear of um, left ductal invasive adenocarcinoma invasive carcinoma, you hear ERPR positive, HER2 negative, invasive ductal carcinoma. You know, so there, there is a reflex mechanism already in place to test those markers. Um, why isn't the case why isn't that the case for lung cancer? It's because it's a little more involved. It's not just IHC staining. Sometimes it involves sending out the tissue. And often the oncologist, when they're seeing the patient, don't know if the tissue is enough or not. And that's a communication that happens later. Patients often are in need to start therapies or are anxious. So, you know, I, I feel like there should be mechanisms in place to implement faster testing, perhaps by reflex mechanisms, but not all places know what are the right steps to implement reflex pathway. It's one thing to say, just implement reflex testing, but it's actually very complicated. You know, IR radiologists are drawing, are, are getting biopsies, pulmonologists are getting biopsies, pathology uh, specimens are coming from surgeons from different places. They often don't know what the stage of the cancer is, so they don't know if they're supposed to reflex on everyone or reflex on just one sample. Um, it's very, very complicated. So what we are actually trying to do, and this is a grant-funded project, is to really implement a step-by-step -step approach to implement reflex testing. Um, and, you know, it would be a really nice roadmap once we have this uh, all solved out or, you know, panned out to share with community hospitals that this is one way to do it. Um, and like I said to you, Dave, I don't think only university hospitals should be doing it. My goal is that every patient should be getting precision testing. And how can we make it easy so that everyone can implement such a system? Well, that's really Really good news um, that you're working that you're currently working on that on that process because I 100% agree with you that you know I was treated at Mass General Hospital in Boston and but I'm from Minnesota so you know I have uh, relatives you know from rural parts of Minnesota and I think they if they want to get treated in the community setting they should have the same access and I but I also agree with you that that all oncologists give earnest effort to do the right thing for the patients and I, I'm I think it's just it has to be overwhelming you know. Um, to keep up with you know the current uh, status of, of of treatment options and things, so the fact that you're working on you know this reflex testing and, and getting you know a process you know that could be shared across, and I love the fact that you're you know like me, we care about all all cancer patients, right? So whether you know it's a pen or not. So what do you, what do you think about precision medicine and like what's going to look like five years from now? I think we're going to be way ahead of what obviously we are today. I think we uh, will be offering many more targeted therapies. I think firstly, we'll have more options for our patients, including some rare um, targetable mutations. You know, there was a very nice paper that was presented, very small study, but looking at the efficacy of a TKI in exon 18 patients, and this is a rare mutation, and to really find a drug that uh, specifically has a high response rate for a rare subtype, gives me hope that in five years, there'll be even smaller subsets where we will have targeted approaches. 
But I think what's important is in the next five years, we will be able to have either signatures or you know, additional biomarkers, hopefully non-invasive, where we will be able to use those uh, to really direct even precision immunotherapy um, and not just do chemo immunotherapy or quadruplet therapy or immunotherapy combinations for each patient. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. I remember, um, I think three years ago, I, I met uh, Jim Allison um, at a, we actually presented an award, the company I work for, we presented him with an award. This was, of course, before he got the Nobel Prize. So, I mean, he was, he was, he was famous, but he, he wasn't, um, you know, as famous as, as he is today. But I just remember thinking about all the hard work that it went into um, his research over the many years. And, and now we, we, we make assumptions that's so simple, like, oh, immun immunotherapy. I'm like, well, yeah, but it took years of research, right? And so the stuff that you're doing today is going to impact things five and 10 and 20 years from now, right? So, you know, I think that's really exciting. You mentioned um, the, you know, the, this more rare mutation and how cool it is that there's actually, we're able to pinpoint and treat those, those, um, subset of patients, right? And I think I remember I was at um, Blueprint Medicines and, and got a tour of their lab a couple of years ago. This is before their RET approval. Um, and they were talking about, you know, their precision medicine company. And, and uh, even if it's only a thousand patients or whatever, it's still, those are still humans. Those are still, right? So, so how cool is that? And, and with KRAS, um, I've been reading stuff. Can you tell me, tell us about like, where's that going? Because I, I think I hear the stuff about, I read stuff about Amgen, you know, and another company that has, that has some real promising things going in. And, and K-Risk is actually, that, that would impact a lot of lung cancer patients potentially, right? Yeah, so KRAS mutations account for about 30 to 33% of all uh, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancers, but there are different subtypes of these KRAS mutations. G12C is about 13% of all lung cancers. So actually it forms a big subset of all patients and not just uh, in, in never smokers. In fact, it can be in um, you know, all patients, uh, even with a history of uh, smoking. And, you know, KRAS mutations have historically been extremely hard to target. I mean, we know, we've known about KRAS mutations longer than we've known about other mutations. Um, and there have been multiple efforts to target it till we really started seeing activity in phase one trials using specific drugs, especially tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, oral therapies, uh, similar to what we use for EGFR, ALK, et cetera. Uh, Sotorasib is one of the front runners. It's a drug made by Amgen that has been uh, really, you know, demonstrating early activity and efficacy since two years ago now, when we first heard of the drug and came on the horizon. Um, it's being studied in the second line setting. And from preliminary data or from the recent data that we have seen, it has a response rate of in the 30% range with a median PFS of about six and a half, six point nine 6.9 months. And I think um, while you know not striking in the same way that we would expect osimertinib or electinib or brigatinib or one of these you know, third generation TKIs to behave, I think the very fact that we are able to get a significant response in a second line patient um, 
with minimal toxicity compared to docetaxel, for example, that we would normally use, I think is very striking and um, it's a really good option for our patients. What's really humbling is that that's not the only drug. You know, there is the Mirati drug that's also showing efficacy. And of course, there are uh, ongoing cellular therapy trials um, evaluating either TCRs, uh, so these are these T cell receptor uh, agents are actually CAR T cells uh, targeting um, KRAS. So as you may know, at Penn, we have a very active CAR T cell uh, program. And I am running a couple of trials in lung cancer specifically related to CAR T cells. Um, one of our trials um, is a CAR T cell against mesothelin, but we have found that mesothelin expression is higher in patients that have a KRS mutation. And, you know, could we use cellular therapy for this particular group of patients? Um, I think remains to be determined, but definitely early efforts are ongoing. That's cool. That's very exciting. Um, I, I'd love to come down to, to Penn sometime and, and have a tour with you. I haven't been there in a long time, so I think it'd be kind of fun. I would I know, love that. You know, I think a lot of us up here in Boston, you know, we, we kind of get, we think the world revolves around us sometimes, you know, so just to be honest. <laughs> and so I'm trying to be- Philly has better food. What's that? I said Philly has better food. Well, you know, I have great fond memories of, of going to Pat's Steaks, you know, late night uh, back, back, <laughs> back in the day. So um, I do love my Philly cheesesteaks. Um, so- that's really good news um, on the the, the CAR T uh, research that you're doing, um, and thank you for that. Um, and like with with um, with ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer, you know, we've had great progress. In fact, I have a friend of mine who's on her fifth clinical trial, and up here in Boston, and I think she's eleven years out, you know, from her stage four diagnosis, which is very cool. And I think there's like five drugs now, right? So, if particular experience with, with those patients um, at, in your practice? Absolutely. Um, so the joys of molecular testing, I'm able to actually discover uh, these mutations in many of my patients. And really, I think the joy, because I'm able to offer them this pill instead of having to offer them chemo or chemoimmunotherapy. And really, it's, it's a completely different outcome, right? I mean, I think with ALK drugs, particularly, we are seeing unprecedented, you know, median progression-free survivals, as well as, you know, now we are seeing three or five-year survivals being reported on these drugs, such as Electinib and Brigatinib, and it's just incredible to see how far we've come. Um, I find that, you know, we're blessed with newer, better options. I'm glad that we're not using crizotinib and certainly glad we're not using seritinib any longer. And electinib and brigatinib are really welcome choices. I've also had experience using lorlatinib. Now lorlatinib, uh, you know, recently did demonstrate superiority compared to crizotinib in the fr frontline setting. This was at the ESMO meeting a few months ago where the crown data was uh, reported. Uh, but honestly, and a lot of this is being driven by what patients tell me is that lorlatinib is just really hard to tolerate. There's a lot of side effects. I haven't really integrated that into my first line use. Um, but I, I welcome it as an option for my patients who've, you know, sort of had their um, success with electinib or brigatinib and are now in need for something else. Wow. You know, you use the word joy, um, you know, when you 
talk about, you know, telling a patient, I can tell you what it's like, and I'm sure you know this too from your interaction with patients, what it feels like to be told you have cancer. What does it feel like as a clinician to actually to, to see that and actually be, oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell so-and-so about this test result that I got. What does that feel like? Yeah, I know. So this is the first time I've actually realized how joyful of an experience this is because I, I actually verbalized it. But, you know, a lot of my um, friends, closest friends are not oncologists or they're not physicians. And often I hear from them and they say to me all the time, I don't know how you do this on an everyday basis. It must be so hard. And I've always realized that it's such a hard job. We have so much weight on our shoulders. I mean, I, I love my patients dearly and they trust me. And you know, just that weight of carrying that trust and making sure that I'm doing right by them every single day, it's a hard job. I mean, I, I say to my friends, yes, it's a very hard job. But I, I have to tell you, Dave, telling a patient that they actually have a mutation and I can give them something oral that can be delivered to them tomorrow and they can start it and they won't lose their hair and they can go to their kid's soccer game and not worry about catching, you know, pre-COVID, you know, being immunocompromised, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's, um, that's huge. And really seeing them scan after scan, scan after scan, scan after scan, doing really well and being able to offer somebody a therapy and and saying, maybe you don't need whole brain radiation right now. Let's just see how this therapy does. I think it's huge. So we we are making a difference. And I, I think this is the first time I verbalized it, but I, I really <laughs> derive immense satisfaction and, and joy. I, I I will say I'm very uh, satisfied in my in my career. And and a lot of it comes from the application of precision medicine. That's so that's so great to hear. And my wife is a nurse um, and she she has said things, you know, she works in the, new, in, the, in the NICU, the newborn ICU. And you know, so people say, oh, it must be so hard, right? With these, these little babies, these premature babies and stuff. And it is, but it, but she, but from her perspective, she's always saying, wow, I can't even imagine being an oncology, like an oncology nurse, you know? So I think there's great respect for what you just described for, it, you, it is a heavy burden that you, that you have, you know, taking care of these patients because they do, but they do trust you. You know, and so that's that's re- I'm sure that's very rewarding, but it's not it's not it's not easy, right? In fact, I actually pulled a uh, from your from your website, I pulled a patient review. It said, Uh-oh. "Ready? Here it goes." <laughs> Dr. Agarwal has such a caring spirit towards her patients. At least me, you feel so relaxed in her company. She's such an asset to Penn Medicine. So, how does that make you feel? Oh, that that just made made my day. That was a double rays of sunshine from you, Dave, today. That was awesome. Thank you for pulling that up. No problem. Well, like I said, you know, we 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 definitely appreciate the work that you do, and and that kind of leads me to something I I can't wait to talk to you about because you can see over my shoulder here the the white ribbon. Um, so there's there's a lot of action going on right now in the one cancer community, and and it really started. It's called the White Ribbon Project. It's a grassroots effort. Uh, of uh, people who are advocates, lung cancer patients, caregivers, physicians, oncologists, nurses, you know, who want to change the public perception of lung cancer, right? And that's kind of the mission of the White Ribbon Project is, is, you know, we're not branded, we're not, we're just our own organization of just grassroots people that want to shout out to the world that anybody that lung, anybody with lungs can get lung cancer, right? And if you smoke, you don't deserve cancer either. 
right? But the point is that there is this sort of stigma around um, lung cancer that is is very common uh, amongst us advocates. You know, we we're, we care a lot about that, and so Heidi and Pierre Onda from Denver, Colorado, he built one of these ribbons. Um, it's a two foot ribbon made of plywood, made with care, made with love, handcrafted. So this is not, I mean, this is, this is legit. And he's made over 400 of these so far. And, and people, I have one here and I'm hanging around town, taking pictures in front of hospitals and pharma companies. And so it, it's like the humans of New York. There's people all over the country and, and Canada who are, are now making their own. It's crazy. So I saw on Twitter that you had I saw your photo with the white ribbon and I want to know, first of all, how you got involved, who gave you the ribbon and what are your feelings from your perspective of this movement of lung cancer patients? Yeah, it's, it's such a nice story. Um, so before I tell you the story, I have to say that it's uh, not just patients. I feel like at some level, uh, even physicians uh, get stigmatized for taking care of certain types of patients or certain types of cancers. So, you know, I, I very much realize um, the stigma that there is and the need to constantly overcome it. And, you know, one person can't do it. It has to be, you know, patients, it has to be advocates, it has to be physicians, it has to be organizations, it has to be industry. I mean, it has to come from everywhere. So I connected with Heidi actually over Twitter and I was just blown away by her story. And, you know, it's not that I don't see it in my practice on an everyday basis where patients, you know, who are young and are devastated by a new diagnosis, you know, and it just makes you realize that anyone, anyone, any single person can get lung cancer. And I felt like that message needed to be amplified. So she and I were connecting and were, she was in the process of sending me a ribbon. And lo and behold, I'm sitting in my office space, uh, you know, in our clinic touchdown area. And I look over my shoulder and it turns out that a patient had actually hand delivered a ribbon mm -hmm. to one of my partners. And I, I looked at that ribbon and I said, oh, Heidi, you don't even have to send it to me. It's already here. And I took a picture of that and I posted it. And then the patient who had actually handed it to my, to my colleague then connected with me on Twitter and said, hey, is that the one I dropped? And then of course, another one of my patients next week, who's a very dear patient of mine who I've taken care of over three years, she came in with one handwritten and hand signed, which I, I've hung in my office now. Uh, but it's just been remarkable uh, to see this grassroots effort really take on. I've seen some pictures of them or, or their garage where they're actually hand producing these <laughs> ribbons. I mean, it's incredible. I love it. And, you know, as much as I can do in my own capacity to amplify it, I will, because I think this is a very, very important message to get across. Well, you made a great point about, uh, about you know, from the clinician side as well, you know, so I, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. It was that Dan? Was it Dan? Yes. Dan Wilson? Oh yes. my God. Now I remember. That's right. Oh my gosh. He is, he is, he is killing it down there. He's doing a great job. He's a great advocate. He's great. Yeah. So, but, but I, but I'll tell you that the spirit body, you're right. It's not just patients. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to get everyone to, to see this difference and people like you make a huge 
difference. It, it has a huge impact because this idea of, you know, I haven't been, I, I'm not currently in treatment at Mass General, so I'm not going into the hospital. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to stay away because I, because of the COVID. So, but I take a picture of myself outside, but the, but the actual see the faces of people in lung cancer, right? It's the, it's the humans of New York idea. It's like, here I am, you know, but here, here is a medical oncologist at University of Pennsylvania with a patient with a white ribbon. Uh, th those images are so powerful. That's the, that's the power of this, uh, of this movement really, right? It's like the city of hope. It's like, it's like the Kimmel Cancer Center. It's like Fox Chase, it's UPenn. And we're, we're just getting started. This only happened, it started in October when Heidi made her first, her first ribbon. So um, I really appreciate, you know, you, you getting involved. So uh, you, you are your own, you know, rock star and, um, and, and oh, being part you of this. So, you no, know, seriously, it means a lot to us. So um, I want to kind of wrap up by asking you, um, like outside of work, um, can you tell us something that you're passionate about or something that people might not know about you? Yeah, so I love to travel and COVID has been really hard. <laughs> yeah. um, so I have two young children and, um, you know, I think they have been to more countries than their collective ages combined <laughs> since they've been born. Um, and they still joke around that they haven't been to Florida. They have actually, but you know, their idea of Florida is going to Disneyland. But I said, yeah, but that's okay. You just went to Iceland, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, when I can travel again, I'm coming down to see you. Okay, and maybe we'll, we can walk over to to Abner's and you know grab a grab a cheesesteak uh, when I'm in town because it's been it's been a while since I've been down there. I haven't I haven't been traveling much either. But uh, anyway, um, Charu, thank you so much for being on the show. I really really uh, really appreciate it, and 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 I can't wait to share this you know with, with everybody. So um, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dave. Keep up the good work. <laughs>